podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Bold is best. of welcomes to the Manchester United weekly podcast with me, Harry Robertson and Jack Tate. Manchester United are in the FA Cup final after beating Brighton on penalties at Wembley. It felt for a long time like a game set to be decided by a moment of genius or a mistake and that was indeed the case. United's penalties were infallible, faultless. Brighton, well, they eventually missed. It's been quite the week. The most disheartening of performances and defeats in Seville sent us out of the Europa League. And then this, I'm still in London after a a brilliantly ridiculous few days away watching United abroad and at home. So forgive the slightly worse sound quality from my side. We'll get on to Portugal, Seville, Morocco and all of that soon enough. We'll also come on to a huge win for United women and our Loney and Academy roundups. But first, that FA Cup semi-final. Jack, the, the game itself, I actually found uh, entertaining. I enjoyed the kind of stalemate and chess match of two good teams and great coaches going against each other. And we can move on to that. I know some people will have found it a bit of a, a, a dull fest. But then after all that, whether you thought it was dull or an exciting to and throwing, penalties just are brilliant. And normally they're horrible as a United fan. And we have such a bad record. And... I can't imagine there were too many inside Wembley or watching from home confident going into this with David De Gea in goal and with our record in penalty shootouts. But that was just brilliant, wasn't it? The ending was fantastic, yeah. It's been... I I still don't... I should have looked this up actually before we started recording, but I still can't tell you the last time we won a penalty shootout. Rochdale. Oh, that was when when Luke Matheson scored against us, wasn't it? The 16-year-old. Yeah. And incredibly, Robert Sanchez was the goalkeeper, which what? I was told shortly after full time. Yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. I was told shortly after time. I could, couldn't believe it. I, I mainly couldn't believe it because I just didn't understand how Robert Sanchez was playing for Rochdale at yeah. that time. And he's, yeah, I remember the, the, what, the defining feature of that game. I remembered Luke Matteson, who I think was 15 at the time. He might have been 16. But yeah, because he, he then got signed by Wolves, didn't he? Off yeah. the back of that. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a terrible game, a, a 1-1 draw, yeah. if I remember correctly. So that was the only time in our last eight since wow. Moscow. I mean, yeah, they, I, I tweeted just before the end of the extra time, I had about 10% confidence that we would win. And I, like you said, I think most people probably felt the same. I mean, yeah. you felt like the penalty takers were probably more confident than we are normally. Just, you know, we have some, you know, a good amount of players in that team that are quite experienced and you you sort of back them Maybe not to score, but at least not to take, you know, really terrible penalties. But, yeah. you know, De Gea, De Gea's penalty, especially in shootouts, his penalty record is atrocious. Yeah. And you know, he still didn't get still didn't get near one, even though he ended up winning. No, and he never felt like he would get near one. It, it ended up being, I obviously went to sudden death and it ended up being kind of the two unlikeliest of heroes in 
Without Veghorst, so I think uh, there was this fanciful idea, certainly from uh, a mate I was watching with uh, Veghorst. We've kind of been waiting for that magic Veghorst moment. Uh, that that shouldn't really happen, given his goal scoring quality. But you just get the sense that he's going to depart with something defining to his United career. So maybe that was expected a bit. But then Victor Lindelof to be United's match winning hero in the end. It was it was fantastic, and it, it was such an outstanding performance from him as well. He was my man yeah. of the match, and and delight from him, and, and the calmness he showed was just exemplary. United's penalties were, were really, really good. Sabitzer's was very tight and it was a lot tighter. Yeah. Now I see the replay than I realised in the stadium. You um, could see his face as he walked away from his penalty as well. He knew. Yeah. Veghorst sprinting over to the United end, uh, which I didn't even see in the madness <laughs> of everything going all around. I didn't even notice him running over. And then I've seen the clip and I wish I had at the time because there was a moment in, it, I, I would assume it was in extra time where a ball went over the top and Rashford couldn't reach it and Veghorst just went, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm having that. Yeah, Rash- Rashford was offside and Veghorst changed, it was his own pass, I'm pretty sure. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, I think the, so. The, I can't emphasise enough how much love there is for Veghorst for all his faults and it's moments like that 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 give you them. What a minute or so for him. Yeah. Scores the sixth penalty, runs to get the ball, gives it to Sonny March, kisses the ball, gets into his head, gets back to his mark and then sprints over celebrating to the United end. It was brilliant. Yeah, really good. And his two moments in particular, I think of his time at United, you just felt so happy for him. Like you said, he, the quality on the pitch clearly isn't isn't there, but I think he's always retained this sort of lovable persona just because of how much you can tell that he he cares in every single action that he does. And we mentioned it in the, yeah. after the league cup final, we had that amazing moment sort of celebrating with the United fans and similarly again in the, after the shootout win and, and kind of during the shootout as well. He just, and it, this is strange for someone who hasn't ever really played for, you know, really, really top level clubs around Europe. He just sort of gets it and he has done for, yeah. from day one. And I think that's why he's, but is that not, is that not the point? The fact he hasn't played at this level before, he is just absolutely making the most of it. And, and he probably knows, I'm sure half of, I mean, I'm sure all of his goal is to make sure his United career carries on, but there's probably a, a large part of him that realizes that's unlikely. And so he's making the most of it. And it's great. And it, you mentioned how, how happy you are. I always think for specific players, that is beyond just the result. I always think penalties, uh, evoke the strongest emotions towards specific players. It kind of makes you realise who you're really willing on to succeed. And I thought that with Jadon Sancho particularly scoring, I'm pretty sure that was the same end at Wembley where he missed in the Euros final against Italy, Marcus Rashford too. For them to step up and and do the penalties that they did was wonderful. Um, Particularly Sancho, who's, as, as we've spoken about, pretty consistently in these last few weeks needs to step up and you hope that this is another one of those little confidence building blocks that that might do it it was a the whole shootout really had probably with the exception of De Gea had a real redemption arc kind of theme to it yeah. and you know obviously Sancho and Rashford scoring their penalties after missing at the Euros final even even Lindelof you know during the game I, I kept thinking back to the last time we were in an FA Cup semi-final in 2020 mm. when you know, I, I distinctly remember coming to that episode. We lost 3-1 to Chelsea. And I distinctly remember the podcast episode coming on here and just absolutely 
like been so, so, so frustrated with Lindelof in particular because he got bullied by Giroud that day and really, really kind of basic stuff. And it was so great for him as well to have a little bit of that redemption. I don't know, it's obviously not as famous as Sancho and Rashford missing their penalties in the Euro final, but at least personally, I remember that game very clearly. And so it it was nice that he... Like you mentioned earlier, after putting in a really, really good performance, then got to be the hero as well. Yeah, I, I'm delighted for him because I think we spoke about this last week, whether it was in the main episode or the Patreon Q&A, I can't remember exactly. But he's at it. When, when called upon this season, he's been really good. And he was obviously involved in Thursday night's debacle in Spain, but he was far from the, the main culprit. And I think he's had a really good season as United's third or fourth choice centre-back. So... Uh, very pleased for him. One of our patrons, Michael Byatt, said, how stressful was the shootout live in the stadium? It was bad enough on a screen thousands of miles away. I think, I, I never know if it's more nervous in the, at least in the ground you feel that you can do something and you feel you're kind of close to the action. And I think some people, it's kind of a personality type, isn't it? Some people get stressed when they can do something. Yeah, some yeah, people yeah. get stressed when they're when they're not in control of, of something. I like the fact that at least you can make a bit of noise. The half of the problem was it was seeing it was at the Brighton end and United were taking second was baffling. Yeah, I mean, so how, how did that how did that, that happen? Is it two I, I is it two separate Quintoses for each one? I didn't think it was. That's a possible explanation. I know in Gdansk, United chose to go second. Jesus, maybe um, we did the same so thing. So it's possible again. that we we chose to go second, which is a interesting tactic given the stats on that, that the team who takes first normally wins on the other hand. Yeah. It worked in this, on this occasion. I did, I, I found it, in terms, it was, yeah, incredibly stressful. I don't know whether it was more or less than at home. I think everyone would have been having an absolutely horrendous time during that as penalties just are the worst until the end and you win. Uh, but I did think it was interesting watching because you mentioned De Gea didn't save any and I think we could have been playing until until today and he wouldn't have saved any <laughs> in, in the shootout. But it, he, he did actually have a big influence on the Solly March miss. Veghorst runs over to get to the ball. There was an interesting thread on this on Twitter. I, I, shamefully, I can't remember actually who, who tweeted it. But there was an interesting thread highlight now. Veg, Brighton's players have been using the tactic that a lot of teams have used, particularly in international football recently, where uh, their goalkeeper picks up the ball after the previous penalty and gives it to their teammate, to their taker, as a way of making the whole experience, th- their first interaction with the penalty area be like a friendly one rather than a, an intimidating one. Brighton had done that for the first six penalties and for the seventh, Veghorst runs over and picks the ball up before. He he, notes, he celebrates, then notices that Robert Sanchez hasn't picked it up immediately and, and goes and takes the ball and then he's the one to give it to Solly March and kisses it as well, which is obviously getting in his head. Meanwhile, De Gea behind him is scuffing up the spot a bit and he, he actually doesn't scuff up the spot a bit, which I'm kind of pleased with because I think that's just actually cheating. But he just kind of... Uh, flicks a bit of dirt off the spot and it's all these little things just getting in Solly March's head bear in mind he'd also been the one to miss the penalty when Brighton went out in the League Cup earlier this season so he did actually have an influence and I, I also found it interesting because I don't know whether it was after two three or four I can't remember in the in the madness but we noticed that Casemiro and I'm not sure yeah did, did it come up on TV Casemiro was waving his arms about it, it didn't come up on TV but I've seen it on Twitter since right yeah, he, he, he looked like a madman, but he seemed to be kind of urging De Gea to do something, make himself look big or put the Brighton players off. I would assume it's because he, having taken it at the Brighton end, would have seen the 30,000 Brighton arms, or 60,000 even, presuming the majority of yeah. them are, are too armed, 
and that we needed to kind of you can't you can't make an equivalent of that but De Gea needed to make a bit of a distraction for the Brighton takers as well but yeah in the end De Gea did give a an important action even though he didn't actually save something yeah I mean it is his record in penalty shootouts is really funny I was trying to find the exact stack after because I remember after the Villarreal final it was already really bad at that point and he obviously still hasn't saved one now it was 41 penalties he yeah, faced so that, without that, saving yeah one that now. was consecutive penalties ever but he saved a couple since then in outside of yeah, shootouts yeah. I couldn't remember what it was specifically in shootouts in a row I, I had some memory that it was like 22 in shootouts after Villarreal but I, I can't really know like, I've plucked that somewhere from the depths of my memory yeah. I've got no idea if it's right well at least 11 in Villarreal and he from memory and then we haven't had one since. Seven. So, what what did you think about the performance itself? It was obviously a great day in the end, and we, we'll talk a bit about who we're facing in the final because suddenly it all the the euphoria turns to fear. But the game itself, I, I, I some people found it boring. I really enjoyed the battle between two good teams performing well and cancelling each other out, and two good managers who were responding to each other's changes. Yeah, I felt I felt like our performance actually wasn't too dissimilar to the, the League Cup final. We were just playing against yeah. not necessarily a better team because you know Newcastle were probably better than Brighton overall, but a team that played better on the day. You know, I think Newcastle were pretty poor in the League Cup final. Brighton That's were fair, pretty yeah. good. They weren't probably at their absolute best, but they, they clearly had a much better sort of grasp on how they wanted to approach the game than Newcastle did. They're obviously a team that has a very clear identity in how they play, especially in possession. I think that showed up. I think it was... A case of a team, the way, I would, the way I would sort of sum up that game is it was a team of slightly worse players with a much clearer sense of how to play against a team with better players, at least on paper, that was sort of trying to, to grind it out and was trying to sort of figure things out throughout the game. And I think you sort of yeah. saw that, like Brighton dominated, maybe not dominated, but certainly had the, the majority of the play, their, their you know, build up from deep was... Very good, very um, intentional in, in sort of every every pass, every move, every action against United that we're sort of happy for them to do that. We put them under more pressure in the second half, especially. And you always, I always felt throughout the game, despite Brighton's sort of possession dominance, I, I still felt like United were the team that felt more likely to score based on, you know, some of the transitions that we had. We probably had... I felt I, we didn't really have any real guilt edge chances, but we got into positions where we should have created them and the final ball let us down a few times. There were a couple, weren't there? Yeah. Like the Ericsson one at the very end of the half. Yeah. I thought that's, it, it was kind of, we, we set up to play in a manner which meant if we were going to win, it was going to be need to finish one of like one or yeah, two exactly. or maybe three chances at most. And it felt at the end particularly, because I, I didn't think either Rashford or Martial looked fit. No, no, really. no. Really. Uh, and I was surprised that Rashford wasn't taken off and they played a full 120 minutes when he did just look like he wasn't fully fit and he did some good things and it felt that chance that he had that Sanchez saved uh, fairly late on in the game. You felt that was kind of, that was Ten Hag's plan, yeah. was disrupt Brighton as much as you can, but don't leave yourselves too open so that they can play through you and, and, you, and, and you saw us, chance. You saw us start to be a lot more aggressive in defence in the second half too, the longer the game yeah. went on at nil-nil, you know, I, I saw on, on Twitter today, uh, this morning, that apparently we had 10 ball recoveries in Brighton's half and every single one of them was came after half time. That's interesting. You know, in the first half, we really were letting Brighton 
it, we, we were actually doing very similar to the issue we talked about after the Barcelona game in that our front three were quite aggressive in trying to push on to Brighton when they had the ball, but then we didn't have the fullbacks and the midfield kind of backing them up as high up the pitch as we want. And so then very often Brighton were very easy able to play through that. In the second half, I felt like we sort of let Brighton's defence have the yeah, ball. Yeah, I was going to say. But then we put the midfield under a lot more pressure. Yeah, they seemed to realise. And I was I'm surprised they didn't think of this from the start because if if you've watched Brighton, that's kind of, you can see that they're brilliant at playing out when challenged. So the second half seemed to make a lot more sense to me that you let Sanchez have the ball, yeah. don't put the pressure on him and then try and win it in midfield. There were times when Veghorst really went at, at Sanchez, I think in, in extra time, that seems more fair enough when the game's a bit scrappier and it's right. really fine margins and you think maybe I'll just get lucky with a, a lapse in concentration here. So I was I was pleased enough with how United played. I especially it was good, when it was especially once Fred well. came on, the things started yeah. to change. And and you mentioned about two good managers sort of cancelling each other out. That was really to me where that sort of tactical battle really started to come into to focus because Fred came on, we had a really good ten or fifteen minutes where you really felt like we were starting to get into the ascendancy in the game. Then Deserby responded by bringing Veltman on. He moved Gross into midfield, McAllister to number 10. And, and then Brighton started to gain a little bit more of a foothold. We, we still were probably on, in the ascendancy at that point, but Fred coming on really did change things. And you could see Deserby very clearly trying to respond to it. It was a, a good sort of back and forth between two managers that I think are very good at changing things in the game yeah. to, to sort of tinker with their systems. A good atmosphere as well, and uh, just a, I thought a good semi-final. There, there will have obviously been some neutrals who went, "Oh, that's boring." But I think if you watch closely enough, and you weren't kind of watching the background, it was it was pretty interesting. If you um, said a good atmosphere, better than the first semi-final. I can't yeah. believe how many empty seats there were. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm always told on that because it's very easy to join in on the on the barbing at City. But I think I think the fact Sheffield United had empty seats as well. Yeah, exactly. That, is, that's what uh, I mean. With City, I can, I don't want to say I can understand it because it's still an FA Cup semi-final, but you know how many times they've been to Wembley in the last like five or six years. But I mean, Sheffield yeah. United, really? They, I mean, they put 40,000 into Bramall Lane every week and you couldn't get that much, yeah, that many to go to Wembley. I was going to say the, the reason I'm loath to go in too hard on either set of support is it's so expensive. The tickets are so expensive. Yeah. The travel is ridiculous, both expensive and really difficult to work out how to get home after the match. If you then have to stay over, obviously London accommodation is really expensive. It's uh, it, it's ridiculous having them at Wembley. I mean, it, it just it, it should go back to the system that used to be where the two teams would agree on a neutral yeah, venue 100%. for a semi-final. And then, you know, making fans from Sheffield and Manchester go it's to crazy, London yeah. is ridiculous. Like, that game should have been played at Ellen Road or... Anfield or some, somewhere yeah, like that. Absolutely agreed. From here, I think, uh, I mean, for, there's, a, there's obviously a few lessons. I mean, Fred is one of them, uh, just going back to that for, for a second. In that I've been really surprised. In January, Fred was playing so well. I've been really surprised, particularly with Ericsson out, how how little Ten Hag's turned to him and his favoured Sabitzer since, since he joined. How Fred having played very well before then. And this was another Fred performance where you went, oh, that, he's such a useful option to have. He's so, he's just such a little disruptor. And he's great to have. The other lesson will be Luke Shaw at, centre, at left centre-back alongside Lindelof, that you would think that is now, that's shown itself to probably be United's strongest centre-back partnership for these next few weeks. Um, but in general, you've just got to take, take this high, get through these final league games, 
get top four, ideally third, and, and give players a rest where we can. So get Varane and Garnacho back playing, get Rashford fit and firing again and ready for the absolute horror of June 3rd, 2023, the first ever Manchester derby yeah, in the I, FA Cup final. On, on Fred, to start with, I we've talked about this before, I'm so shocked that Fred hasn't played more. I even go back to, I understand that he's, he's not... He's not best suited to every single game and that's fine. But especially going back to like the Newcastle game, for example, where we started McTominay, Sabitza and Fernandez in midfield. You know, that that was a perfect game for me when Fred could come in because it was the kind of game where you knew it was going to be scrappy. You knew that we were probably going to be a little bit under the cosh at times in that game. And to some degree, without meaning to oversimplify it, you, you need Fred's chaos yeah. in some of these games. And that's exactly what he brought to the Brighton game. Uh, you know, it, it was an element of a sort of chaos and breaking up the play, especially against Brighton, a team that liked to keep things very, you know, well-patterned. His influence was massive as soon as he came on. I, I sort of understand Sabitzer being ahead of him at times, especially because of how high up Sabitzer has been playing for a lot, of the, a lot of his time at the club so far. But the one that really surprised me throughout the last few months is that McTominay has been ahead of him in the pecking order as well. And again, McTominay has his uses and at, at times it's felt like Ten Hag has just prioritised getting a bit of height into yeah, the team. Yeah, I, I think it's that, isn't it? I think Fred is, is can count himself very unfortunate not to have played more than he has in the last few months. Yeah. He's obviously, he has bad performances. We've seen them and he's, he can be, he's very hot and cold, but when he's hot, it, he's so valuable to that team. Um, yeah. And yeah, the FA Cup final. It's great to be in it. Yeah. But it's, it's a terrifying prospect. Yeah. I, mean, I saw I saw a, yeah. a good point. I, I can't remember who this is from on Twitter, but saying that there there shouldn't be anyone a, a supporter of either of these two teams that's really looking forward to this. It's yeah. going to be it's going to be awful. <laughs> I mean, Michael asked about how stressful watching the penalty shootout was. I I just cannot even begin to imagine. Yeah, what June the third is going to be like inside Wembley. I, I mean, it's the, just. The potential An for nightmare for, scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The potential for both but, teams yeah, the potential is for, for greatness. Massive, because obviously, yeah. f- from their point of view, that if they've won the, the league already by that point and are in a Champions League final, you know, potentially second leg of a treble, and would make it all the sweeter to do yeah. part of it directly against us. And then, from our point of view, I, I don't. You don't want this going into it, but coming out of it, almost the ideal scenario would be if they have won the league and then they're in the Champions League final and we can be the ones to act, to directly put a stop to them having any sniff of the treble. Like how sweet would that yeah. be? You know, but again... You- 77 all over. Yeah, again. yeah. Yeah. In 77, it was Doherty. Yeah. It'll be horrible, but it's, as, as we alluded to earlier, I think it's better to have control over these things. And if we lose, you could just say, well, yeah, I mean, we had the opportunity to and we didn't do it. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a, a, a small prediction now. I think Garnacho is going to score the winner. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's getting me a little bit giddy. Still <laughs> six weeks to go. Actually, some, I, I, should, I should mention, actually, speaking of predictions, that um, Rebecca Grimshaw tweeted me after we won on penalties saying, you know, you predicted it right because I said last week that we'd beat Brighton yeah. on penalties. But I don't feel like I can take any credit for it because I also predicted we'd beat Sevilla 4-1. So... Yeah, <laughs> I yeah I got mine completely wrong. I said we'd win in Sevilla and lose to Brighton at Wembley, um, but I'm I'm happy enough 
I got I got it right in the sense that we'd only go through one of them. Yeah. So I'll take that. Um, but yeah, six weeks away. Um, yeah, let the anticipation begin. We're going to talk about Sevilla after this break. To take your tone down ever so slightly. Severe was horrible, wasn't it? It really was terrible. Um, and De Gea and Maguire were the biggest focus, and absolutely rightly so. Uh, it, it, it's incredible looking back a few days on now after the win at Wembley and after De Gea had a decent performance. And uh, I think because of the kind of warm glow of FA Cup semi-final victory, it's hard to be quite as incisive as we might have been after Thursday. But it did feel at that point like you're watching at the end of the Hayes United career because it, it was shocking. It, yeah, it was it was so, so bad throughout the game. It was it was one of those moments where you're almost in disbelief that yeah. the same person is, is making you know these massive mistakes over and over again. Like to be honest, I, I when I was watching the game when the when he made the bad touch for the third goal, I honestly just laughed at that point because it was just it, it almost, you, you saw him coming out and you just said there's no way this goes well. At, like at all and it, it really felt like that from the first like minute or so he'd already yeah. misplaced a couple of passes even before the the really bad pass into Maguire that led to the first goal and Maguire isn't blameless in that but also wasn't put in a great position by the, the pass from no the I, th- I think it's shared blame isn't it and I, to be fair even at Wembley yeah. um, where it wasn't as noticeable there were moments where De Gea's kicking was poor there were a couple of really good balls actually but you notice when when the balls are poor I think particularly getting to watch it live is uh, in some cases a privilege and in other cases like at Sevilla can be a, a horrible few moments. But one of the things you get to see is the movement around the hair. And we, I've said this before, it, it at times it's so poor. And there was a even a moment at Wembley forgetting Sevilla for a second where De Gea received the ball and then Dalot didn't get wide, Lindelof didn't spread out and suddenly De Gea only had kind of the midfield to aim at and there wasn't actually anyone free in midfield. And he loses the ball and you think that that is a problem, but it's not yeah. all on his shoulders. I think Sevilla was a, a bit more unique. I think there were moments like that, but he obviously made two big mistakes. Um, but the, the whole team was was so poor. And I like Ten Hag's line uh, in an interview with Andy Mitten after the Wembley game, where he said uh, he had a, a bad day at the office on day this is had a bad day at the office on Thursday but we let him down by failing to score and make up yeah. for his mistakes and I think that's right because the whole United team were off it and I've seen plenty of Reds say this and, and you've you've said this lots of time over the last couple of years you can tell when United are going to lose a game within a few minutes and the atmosphere inside that ground was incredible I've I've rarely seen a stadium. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen a stadium outside of Argentina where the entire ground, all four sides, it, with of the obvious exception of the way end, is bouncing up and down, and you can kind of feel the stadium bouncing with it. And that was after they were winning, but it wasn't far off that before they'd even gone a goal ahead, and that obviously just exacerbated things in terms of problems for United and helped with the atmosphere. And you just got the sense United aren't winning this, and. Everyone was proved right in that sense. Yeah, I think Ten, Ten Hag's comments after the game were were right in that. 
I, I understand why coverage after a game, any game where there's a, a massive kind of eye-catching mistake like that all focuses on that one moment. But going conceding one goal isn't curtains. United have proved throughout this season there have been plenty of times when we've recovered from going a goal down, whether that's to go behind or, or just conceding a goal as an equaliser, for example, after we've scored already. There was 85 minutes left in that game or 83 minutes left in that game after we conceded that first goal and we were still second best for probably 81 of those 83 minutes you know and yeah. I think that that's what was so disappointing you know even on TV you could see how amazing that atmosphere was and how difficult that was going to be to play in and I don't discount that by any means but there is still a level of performance that you have to expect from players at that level you know this isn't the first time they've played in an intimidating atmosphere that might be no a slightly they rarely do well in in such atmosphere yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. just the 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 harsh truth of yeah a lot of the players who who started. I think one of the big caveats. I don't think this is an excuse. Well, it kind of is an excuse. It's not me excusing the players who came in. It's more excusing the the team as a whole and and United. Only Wan Bissaka, De Gea, Sancho, and Casemiro started both Barcelona and Sevilla away. Wow, it, I think that says a lot about the the challenges of these last few weeks in terms of who's been. Uh, available and absent it's been a lot of change uh, injuries and suspensions to I mean all of our key players at some point over those two games have been unavailable it's it's incredible I think that is one of the key reasons for it is that the United team we start we, uh, this is yet another example where we've seen United second 11 isn't good enough there are too many players who can't handle the big occasions and we saw that again as a as a trip Sevilla was lovely and their fans were great and um it's a, a brilliant city. Um, I just hope United won't be going back to back there again, <laughs> having lost three times um, after playing them three times. Well, in fact, we've won none of five meetings with Sevilla in these last five years, which is incredible, particularly given how poorly they're doing this season. And it's now seven years in a row being knocked out by Spanish teams. We obviously did beat a couple this year, but... Yeah, hopefully we won't be going back to Spain in the what will hopefully be the Champions League group stages next season. Unless it's to Real Madrid, because I'd love to see the renovated <laughs> Bernabeu. Yeah. It was a great trip overall. And as our patrons will have heard, I did a silly route because I've been to Seville before and wanted to add a bit of excitement to it. So me and my brother flew to Faro in Portugal, uh, right near the Spanish border, flew there, had a lovely afternoon in Portugal, tried Pastel de Nata, which I was a bit unsure of because I'm not a big big fan of custard, all those kind of things. But yeah, wow, they're, they're brilliant. Um, had a few super box in the sun, then went to Seville and then on the way back flew, uh, went to Malaga, flew to Morocco, had a day in Tangier, a day in Rabat and then landed, well, got home at about 5am on Sunday morning and slept and went immediately to Wembley. So it was a pretty amazing few days and winning on Sunday made up for it. Um, it would have been quite chasing it to do all of that and see United fail to win either of them. But yeah, some some great, great times. Morocco is an amazing place. So yeah, buzzing to have got to go there. What we haven't mentioned, we have mentioned it's the first Manchester derby in an FA Cup final. It's also the first time United have been in both FA Cup finals because United beat Brighton. United women beat Brighton in the... FA Cup semi-final as well and we'll be playing in the final against Chelsea on 14th of May so um, great year for the club in that sense hopefully we can win them both I think we go into both games as underdogs which is interesting but let's see what happens uh, as for United women in the league massive win on Wednesday night against Arsenal 
didn't see the game because I was away, but it, it sounded great and it keeps the title race and, and even the chase for the double going. Arsenal and Chelsea are both competing in Europe. Arsenal got a good result at Wolfsburg. Chelsea were beaten by Barcelona at home in their first legs. But it's possible that their involvement in Europe could be the difference and United can really take advantage of having a bit of extra rest and possibly win the title. Or well, I think Chelsea is still in Chelsea's hands, so we'll see what happens. But beating Arsenal is massive. And Chelsea and Arsenal still have to play each other. Jack, were there any big lone headlines this week? Nothing too big. Ahmed was once again the standout. He had another great performance as Sunderland beat West Brom. They continued to try and make the playoffs. There weren't any huge standouts other than that. Uh, Ahmad also didn't manage to win the Young Player of the Year award in the championship. But nonetheless, you know, didn't really need the recognition to know what a great season he's had for Sunderland. And it'll be interesting especially now as we get towards the end of the season to look ahead at how he might kind of fit in at United next season. Cause I think he's, yeah. his performances have definitely, definitely warranted a, some kind of role. Yeah. It's a really interesting decision to make that one because he's done so well here. Do you integrate him into the squad as a winger and see what he can do? Or do you give him a Premier League loan? It's uh, I don't know what, I mean, we, we don't know what the right decision is. It's obviously hypothetical, but I'd be keen to see what he can do over pre-season because he's obviously been doing so well, especially if he can bulk up a bit over summer. I think he'd be quite useful as well because he, he can play on the right. Yeah. He's been playing through the middle quite a bit for for Sunderland, but especially being able to play on the right, be a proper kind of backup for Anthony. That's a position we don't really have another option besides Anthony. We've seen when he's been out, it's been different players kind of shuffled out there. Bruno Fernandes had to play there. Sancho and Rashford both aren't particularly comfortable on the right. So, I think it all it all kind of depends on how many games Ten Hag expects because Anthony is you know one of the players that has played almost yeah. every game when he's been fit. But also, if you could get a Premier League loan, especially at a team that you know, I think I think the worry is sometimes with loanees you sort of think, well, yeah, let them go to a Premier League team rather than a Championship team. But especially for an attacking player, if the Premier League team they're going to go to is a team that's going to have you know twenty five percent possession every week. He's not actually yeah. learning that much yeah. as an attacking player. And in some ways, going to a championship team, a good championship team, they're going to dominate possession. It's actually kind of better experience. So I think it, it's interesting to see what options there are on the table. And that will probably dictate, I think, what ends up happening next year. Yeah. But if United do manage to get a proper striker in, who's going to start almost every game, the options on the wing are plentiful. Rafford, yeah. Sancho, yeah. Garnacho, Anthony, possibly Pellistri, although... It's possible he'll go in, in, in summer, but you add Ahmed to that and you've got loads of players there who can rotate and be good bench options. And you think Ahmad is, he's come off the bench several times for suddenly this season and made a real impact in the same way that Garnacho was for United. So he could be really beneficial there. In terms of the academy, the under 18s had two games in the last week. They beat Leeds 3-1 at home and Middlesbrough 2-0. Uh, the scorers against Leeds were Scanlon, Norkett and Wheatley and Ethan Williams got the two goals against Borough. The under 21s, uh, lost 3-2 twice. First at Leicester in a poor performance. Lead coach Mark Dempsey said they had some harsh chats with some of the players, um, with some, some harsh truths delivered after that game. Um, and he was really pleased with the, the the response at Brighton on Friday. United lost 3-2 again, should have won with the chances that he had. It was 2-2 two, two at half-time. Um, and Brighton found the winner with kind of their only proper attack of the second half. And United lacked that killer instinct that they have all season. But he was really pleased with how the players had responded nevertheless. Jack, uh, we better wrap up soon because I have a an entire dissertation to write on football in Edwardian Manchester before Tottenham away on Thursday night. Um, <laughs> but Tottenham away, having just been spanked, 
it's uh, United's array record is really poor. And so I kind of don't give much credence to the fact that they've just been absolutely humiliated at Newcastle. And we know ourselves that you can be beaten 7-0 at Liverpool and then calm things down with a home draw or a home victory, even if it's narrow. So I'm not massively confident. I partly just think avoid defeat. I think United are better than Tottenham and so should really be going there and winning. But let's say, because we know that Rashford, Martial and Bruno aren't guaranteed to be fit for this, let's say two of those three are out. And then you think, okay, a draw might be a decent result. So it's kind of dependent on who's available, isn't it? Yeah, this strikes me as kind of the the very stoppable force meets the very movable object (laughs) in terms of Tottenham at the moment against United's away form. Two things that probably don't inspire much confidence. I, I, I think Spurs... And we we know this from experience from United both this season and before. After a game like that, like they just had against Newcastle, I think you can you can get one of two responses. You either get something quite big early in the game that sort of gets the whole stadium and the whole team really fired up, similarly to how we started against Liverpool at yeah. home earlier in the season, or it can look more like we did after you know any one of the you know the capitulations under Ranić last year where. The whole stadium is just so nervous. And if if you if you don't have something really positive happen in the first 10 minutes, that whole stadium is going to be on the players' backs. The players are going to start yeah. to really kind of creak. So I think this, the start of this game is a big deal. And if United can control the game, which isn't something we've been very good at away from home, I think you could see us really start to grind Tottenham down throughout the game. I mean, just not only this, this one, but the next three. So our next three games are Spurs away, then Villa at home, then Brighton away. Obviously three teams... I think they're actually, that's fifth, sixth and seventh in the Premier League at the moment. Maybe, yeah. maybe Brighton are below Liverpool now. But I think if you come away from those three games with at least five points, I think United are probably home and host in terms of getting into the Champions League. If you can win two of them, even better, better. Yeah. You know, these really are the three really important games before the end of the season. After that, our fixtures ease out a little bit. I think we play Wolves and Bournemouth and then Chelsea and Fulham to end the season. But, you know, these next three really will, will be what decides it. And from United's point of view, to your point about just don't lose, that really is the name of the game from these three. If you can avoid defeat, if you can avoid defeat in all three of them, obviously great. If you can avoid defeat in more than one, that's, I think, still absolutely fine. Yeah, but I hope we win. I think if Fernandes is fit and Rashford is fit, I mean, you could run right against that Tottenham team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would expect they'll make a lot of changes and their primary goal will be tightening up. And at yeah, least 100%. getting to half time without conceding, because as you say, the, the atmosphere is going to be really important. But yeah, the message from Tanakh should just be go out and start as quickly as possible and get this crowd to turn on their own team. Cause uh, we know Spurs fans aren't, um, aren't opposed to doing that. Um, right. Let's wrap up prediction for Thursday. I think it will be a very, very scrappy one all draw. Yeah, I was going to go one-one as well, but he's hoping to to something better. Even if it is, I think the warm glow of a penalty shootout victory will continue on throughout the week. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the episode. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. For our thoughts throughout the week, including on the Tottenham game, you can find Jack on Twitter at at UTD Tates T A I T, and you can find me at Harry Robinson sixty four, and the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod. That's P O D at the end there. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Goodbye.
Social Podcast Network.